check, check. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Roycast, the Internet's only succession podcast. Thank you for listening. I am joined, as always, by my co-hosts. Kate here. Hey, guys. Hey, guys. Gabby here. And we are joined also today uh, by another friend of ours, Succession fan. Uh, Please say hello to Kate H. Hello, Kate. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Welcome. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Our goal is to eventually have a podcast with uh, entirely people named Kate. I'm in the process of filling out the paperwork right now. Um, but that's that's going to be a long road. So, uh, Kate H., when did you uh, kind of start watching the show? And, I mean, how did you get into it? I think we influenced you to start watching it. Is that right? Definitely. Um, I actually don't think I saw the show until it completed its run on television. So, I think I started watching either right as it was ending or pretty quickly after, but um, I think all the episodes had aired and you guys definitely encouraged me to watch it. Um, I'm not sure that I would have otherwise. Uh, the uh, trailers for the show, I don't think were great representations of like the humor and the true kind of drama going on in the show. And so I wasn't super interested in it based on the trailers, but uh, you guys convinced me and I'm really glad I watched it because it was fantastic. I love the show. So what did you really uh, enjoy about it? And uh, what did you, what did you find of interest as you got into it? I know you you had, I think a particular connection to this episode, but were there other characters or episodes that you found yourself like kind of relating to, or that really got you into the swing of things? I loved uh, Tom and Greg uh, as the sort of outsiders in this crazy family. Um, you know, getting to go along in the plot and the story with them, you know, they were sort of a substitute for the reader or for the watcher in, in some of those uh, situations because uh, they were such outsiders and uh, treated pretty poorly by some of the main cast. Um, Roman is a fantastic character and um, I thought Kiernan uh, played him very, very well. Um Super funny, just a total blast to watch as opposed to um, the actor who portrayed Kendall. Very, very different uh, type of story, type of character. But there was a lot of zaniness to a lot of the characters, which is, of course, entertaining. But the way they interacted with each other and seemed to really portray a strong familial bond uh, was, I guess, what kept me interested and kept me watching. Yeah, hearing you talk about it kind of reminds me of the way I think Gabby all usually talks about the show as like being sort of connected to these other HBO dramas about big families like Six Feet Under, you know, and then you have these side characters who are sort of, you know, audience point of view characters that sort of give you a keyhole view into uh, how these families conduct themselves and their sort of unique cultures or ways of relating to each other. Definitely. I just wanted to add that I thought Karen Culkin had an amazing, this was a really strong episode for him. And I know I mentioned some great one-liners. Yeah. Yeah. And I know I mentioned Stewie's mannerisms last time. um, But man, Culkin has some, as Roman, some really strong mannerisms and just weird things he does. That's obviously not scripted that Karen is bringing to the role. And uh, this was a really strong episode that, Uh, showcase that so kate you wanted to talk about this episode in particular which is uh episode four the sad sack 
Wasp Trap, which is referring to the Reckney Ball, the Roy Endowment Creative New York uh, sort of annual gala event. And I, I think you had a particular interest in this episode. What was that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, as a professional nonprofit fundraiser, uh, this episode more accurately portrays the world of nonprofit event fundraising better than pretty much any other fictional show I've ever seen. Truly incredible had me like rolling with laughter to the point where I have actually forced my coworkers to watch clips of this episode and cold butter is now our code phrase. (laughs) Connor going around apologizing to everyone for the butter. I love that. Logan's like, what's wrong with the butter? Yeah. But Marsha knew. Frozen. Frozen. I love that little tidbit. (laughs) Marsha knows. Marsha knows, yeah. So, yeah, this is a cool episode. Um, The first half is sort of, we kind of get Logan back after his incapacitation for a couple episodes after the pilot. So there's a lot of, you know, tension between Ken and Logan, and and Ken continues to get shit on. Um... (laughs) You know, just without fails, don't have to worry about Ken not getting shit on. But I think some of the other characters get taken down a peg in this episode in ways that we haven't seen before. There's a lot to drive the plot forward. A lot of humor packed in. The sort of institutional culture of ATN and the company, uh, ATN being the, like, essentially, like, Fox News analog that is run by Waystar Royco. And then also delving a little bit into what's going on with Tom... Um, and him taking over the helm at the uh, the parks arena. But yeah, so the episode starts with Ken kind of reviewing his speech for this gala for the Reckney Ball, because he's ostensibly going to be the keynote speaker. And uh, one, one thing that I didn't pick up on, that I picked up on on the rewatch, was that when he gets off the plane, I guess he's, he was in LA or something for business, but when he gets off the plane and he gets into the car, he's wearing these like, you know, kind of dorky sunglasses, and he's also wearing a, a baseball cap that says Walter on it, which I thought was hysterical, um, considering, <laughs> so Walter being sort of the, the Gawker company that was acquired <laughs> in, in, the, in, the, in the pilot, and considering, like, Lawrence, who runs Walter, like, his open contempt for Ken, like, Ken wearing the baseball cap, trying to be cool, be like, you know, a Murdoch son wearing like a Gawker hat. Like it just, it cracked me up when I noticed that he was wearing that cap when he gets just like constantly like bodied by Lawrence. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, uh, it's not really, I don't think they tell us where he's been exactly. He's been in LA taking meetings of some kind, but he comes back and Logan's back in the CEO office. You know, the implication is that, you know, he, he he looks away for a second, then the fox is in the hen house, right? And he has, you know, once again, lost control of the power dynamic. But I want to double back and talk about uh, Shiv, who has, uh, there's, there's a few interesting subplots in this episode, but um, Shiv is uh, one that really gets us into, as you mentioned, Gabby, the culture of kind of ATN. Do you want to talk about, Gabby, what uh, Shiv exactly is up to and where she starts off in this episode? Yeah, well, I mean, Shiv is currently working with um, a liberal politician who is running for Senate in New York. Um, it's Joyce, right? Is that it? Joyce, right? Yeah. So, so, so the episode. I don't know last name. Yeah, I don't know. If, I don't know if we get a last name, but Joyce 
So, so as we know, like she's this rising star in the party, as we know from the last episode when when Shiv meets up with her with her ex, who is kind of working with a rival candidate, and there is a scandal that erupts where Shiv's candidate's husband um, <laughs> basically uh, took a picture of his asshole, and it ended up <laughs> on this website, and. Um, you know, it's obviously pretty unsavory and, you know, she's, she's trying to do damage control. They're all trying to do damage control, but the news is running with it. ATN is, is obviously running with it because there's, you know, this uh, conservative media outlet. And, you know, she, in this episode, Shiv, you know, we, we've seen her up to now is sort of just, um, you know, having fun and, um, you know, enjoying her position of power and her ability to sort of be at the top of this political game which she really does kind of see as a game, but um, this is the first time that she really has a, a major conflict when it comes to something other than her family. So she addresses, um, you know, she's, she's in a meeting with her candidate, who's an African-American candidate, which, which also sort of, you know, hammers home the point that this, that ACN is like a conservative media outlet and it's, you know, doing what it can to, to take this candidate down. So Shiv is kind of talking to the candidate and she's saying that, you know, you need to make this go away and response to her, you know, it's not going away because ATN won't let it go away. So I think you should talk to your father, which um, is the first kind of jab that Shiv is on the receiving end of in this episode. Um, and it kind of reminds me of the pilot when um, Ken is told, you know, do you want to call your dad after the failed meeting i think these kids are kind of seen and can't really escape the fact that they are just extensions of their father uh, so even though Shiv has sort of carved out her own place in the world or so she thinks working for this you know for liberals and the democratic party and she's doing her own thing um, ultimately she is never going to be like cut off from being an extension of her father. And so when the can her own candidate tells her, you know, maybe you should talk to your dad, it, it shows the lack of control that really, that, that she thinks she has. And in fact, she kind of flails when, when faced with this particular career challenge. It seems like something that she has not dealt with before. Yeah. I mean, you make a good point about how it's kind of uh, it's kind of a callback to that line in the pilot. And I think there's almost the implication that, one of the reasons Shiv is in the position that she's in and has the jobs that she's in is because she's being hired with the expectation that she can pull strings and influence powerful people like her father. And then it turns out she can't. And there's this palpable frustration on her candidate's face when she can't do that. That encounter was really mirrored by, and I think it was before her conversation with Joyce, but it may have been after um, she was talking with Ava. Yeah, that, um, that came after, yeah, and that one was... Yeah. You know, Ava is such a tough cookie and she just is having none of it. Shiv's trying to use her influence to make sure ATN show the, doesn't show the asshole pick and all, and all of that. But, you know, she's like, I'm a strategist of the campaign. And Ava responds, if your name didn't match the one on the building's name, I wouldn't even let you in the building. So again, it's like completely, reified to her that you're only worthy really because of your family name and you know similar to Joyce you know she gets hit hit with that one-two punch in this app and uh, she's very shooken up as we kind of discussed before but from the Ava 
one-on-one dueling kind of yeah yeah. I, i thought that scene was great i thought it was necessary i thought you know, it's time that that Chib needed to like be taken down a peg. Yeah. So Ava is the is a producer at ACN, and she's played by Judy Reyes, best known for her work in Scrubs. But she's been in a lot of things. very funny. Like <laughs> when they're in the production room and she's calling out to one of the anchors, and she's like, "Karen, have you been sleeping okay?" She's like, "Yeah, I've been sleeping great." <laughs> like basically telling her she looks like shit. And so you know, Chib is doing damage control and this scandal and and trying to. Um, you know, use her power. Like I said, you know, she's sort of been having fun with her power, but now she kind of finds herself in a serious uh, quandary. And so, yeah, she addresses Ava and she asks her to, to call up the dogs, meaning, you know, you have this story really high up on your half hour. And Shiv gets on this really just sort of ridiculous high horse where she says, you know, it's vindictive and it's bad for democracy. And this is the old world. You know, again, this tension between old world and new world and the, sh- and the Roy kids like trying to, you know, per- kind of posture as like they're, you know, sort of, uh, you know, leaving behind old norms and mores and, and values. And-, and they have all these smart ideas and they know what-, what power looks like and what influence looks like. And, you know, we-, we sort of start to peel back the layers here also of sort of this whole news ecosystem that's going on at ATN that really is supposed to kind of be a stand-in for for, for Fox News. You know, and, and, and not just Fox News, you know, all the whole um, fake news sort of world and landscape, but, um, you know, the, the deliberate role it plays in, um, you know, political ideology and, and, and influence. But yeah, we, we sort of, we, see, we get a better glimpse at it when, when Schiff says, you know, are you doing this because you think my dad wants you to be doing this. And, and Ava responds super wryly, um, you know, oh no, he would never pressure his people like that. Yeah. Um, Im- implying that, you know, that's exactly what he does. And that's exactly why it's sitting so high at the half an hour. And then oh, I took, I took it differently, Gabby. I took it oh, as yeah. meaning that he knows how to get what he wants without applying direct pressure because his influence is so strong. Uh, right. Okay. I like those scenes for all the reasons Gabby mentioned, but I just like the subplot in general because it's sort of, uh, you know, a rip from the headlines, Anthony Weiner scandal, very much like bringing that in, but flipping it a little bit as it's not the candidate who's uh, potentially soliciting, allegedly soliciting minors online or posting their own dick pics. But um, I did love that little nod to the 2016 election and the uh, subsequent uh, tie-in to Hillary Clinton that that uh, came back to bite her in the ass with. So Yeah, I think even in the gala, they mentioned something also, like, that's sort of a rip from the headlines thing that's a dick pic related. Like, the, the host of the gala at one point is, like, you know, says something about, like, lewd photos. He's like, governor... You know, everyone's like, ha, ha, ha. There's a lot here that, that I think, for the first time, definitely... Um, reflects on what's really happening and yeah just just wrapping up that shiv scene with with ava you know so shiv gets kind of sanctimonious and then ava's like all right and then she's actually shiv kind of like you know she she's feeling definitely gut punched and then she kind of perks back up again and says actually you know we're not finished this reflects on your professional judgment and this you know um someday things are going to change and this is the old world it's sort of like a very thinly veiled threat um and Ava just returns it back to her. Um, Kate mentioned it earlier, but she says, you know, I wouldn't let just any political strategist in the building. So if we're talking professional judgment, it's good to bear in mind that you're only here because your name matches the one in the building. 
and it's like, boom, you know, just the absolute, just kind of insult that, that Shiv really, you could tell just by the look on her face, has a very, very hard time with because she thinks that she has carved out sort of a separate career path for her that she's earned. Um, and, you know, just sort of thrown back in her face that, you know, you're here because you're related to somebody who is sort of controlling this entire thing. And, um, you know, I think it's very funny that Shiv brings up the idea of like the old world and Ken brings that up too a lot when um, you know, there's nothing more old world than sort of nepotism and using your <laughs> familial relations and, and, and wealth for, for perks and, and moving up in the world of your career. There's nothing more old world than that. So, um, you know, for, for them to kind of get sanctimonious about their ideas about what the world should look like is uh, shows a, a lot of uh, how deeply out of touch the kids are as well. Like, I think she knows she's totally fronting. Oh, so, yeah. Like, when she's talking about the new world and stuff, like, while Kendall, I think, actually buys into that shit, I don't believe, I, I think that Shiv, Shiv is too smart for, for that. Oh, like, yeah, you know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's so funny. It's so funny. Um, yeah. But you mentioned the scene at the gala, which I was, you, you know, you always basically have the smartest comments before I can get them out. But um, just, yeah, he's like, and no sexting. I'm looking at you, Gov, you know, which is a total. Right, that's what it um, was. <laughs> yeah, a total call to both either Wiener and, I mean, mostly Wiener, but also, you know, Spitzer had, mm-hmm. you know, the. Totally. Um, yeah. And it's just one of the so many examples of sexism in this episode, both like overtly and in subtext, most, you know, both in the culture of ATN, but just like the culture in general, which I'm sure we'll get into in a little bit. But yeah. Yeah, I mean, no, I think is, you know, that's that's a perfect segue. I mean, the episode is really suffused with the discussion of sex as, you know, you know, intimacy between two people as, you know, as sexual assault, harassment, coercion, all these different things that are going on throughout the episode. You have the episode is sort of framed with Roman's interactions with his girlfriend, maybe wife. We're not really sure. Grace um, and his inability to be uh, as we start to kind of see for the first time, you know, his inability to really be properly intimate with somebody. Um, But more to the point, the ATN scenes we're talking about, there's even that scene which is played kind of as a funny scene where Ava is talking about how to play the asshole pick, and then she starts bantering with the two anchors, talking about the woman's looks, and then she tells the male anchor that he's F.I.E., fuckable in an emergency, <laughs> which is this thing where, you know, that's the parallel is not that Ava is a specific person. It's not that she's Roger Ailes, you know, the uh, late head of Fox News, or something like that. But it's really a clear parallel to the institutional culture that we know that Fox News has, where there was it was not just Roger Ailes, who is obviously the sort of biggest perpetrator of sex crimes, who was working at the network and using the institutional support that he had um, to cover them up and carry them out. But there are multiple people like Bill O'Reilly, Eric Bowling, who went down for sexual harassment, you know, for their uh, interactions with people they worked with. And, you know, Ava seems to be somebody who is similarly using 
sex as intimidation, coercion, uh, to really maintain discipline uh, at the network. And I think that's much more meaningful than simply making, you know, sort of like an Ailes-like character, which is another really smart thing that the show does is shy away from really direct parallels like that. Yeah, I mean, she's also a woman of color, which is, you know, starkly different from, from an Ailes or... Uh, it's a whole other kettle of fish. O'Reilly, yeah. So yeah, not not a grotesque uh, uh, Irish monster. <laughs> it, it, yeah, it just shows how pervasive this culture is. That like anyone can become inculcated, like at the top level, regardless if you're a man, woman, person of color. I mean, we see this with with Ava. I mean, you know, obviously. <laughs> how she treats that anchor is terrible. And then we see it a little bit later with Jerry, who's willing at the gala to um, be, be a little sexist with Tom and use sex, you know, as if, as if it, you know, like as if it were appropriate in the workplace, you know, and she's top level. So it shows just how predominant and prevalent um, it is. And, Again, like I'm, I'm looking at my notes and I put asterisks by the moments of sexism, and I just went through and counted, and it's 19. I don't know, but what's really I, I didn't really pick up on that in the first few watches, like at all, and which was mind blowing for me just to think, like you know that's normal I guess you know what I mean like it didn't stick out that there was a huge number of sexist moments um, well I think that's another thing about good writing like this is when yeah. everything is really steeped deeply in the character's identity and the nature of the world and institutions that the story is about and it's not necessarily really signposted or underlined for you it is possible to just kind of focus on you know, one character, one storyline or something like that and not necessarily notice all the things that it's doing. That's the sign, I think, of a really well-written, you know, script is that there's stuff that you can go back to and discover um, that it's really fleshed out its world completely. But I think this is a very good segue also into the Tom storyline for this episode, which I guess is also continually the adventures of Tom and Greg, uh, these sort of sitcom spinoff. But uh, in this episode... Tom is taking over the North American division of uh, Parks and Cruises from his predecessor, who's a very affable uh, guy named Bill. Uh, And then he has a very disturbing conversation with Bill on his way out of the office where he's introduced to the concept of the death pit. The Death Pit is something I, I really love the way that they write about the Death Pit just because it's always sort of addressed in oblique metaphorical language, both because the characters are so disturbed slash, you know, shy about legal action that they don't want to be caught actually talking about the thing they're talking about and the way that that magnifies your idea of what the problem actually is so that you're not actually entirely sure what the death pit comprises it seems to be a sort of pattern of institutionalized sexual assault that occurred under some of the leadership in the cruises but 
Tom only really obliquely says that once, and every other time they mention it, it's all these references to sort of like nuclear rods <laughs> and you know bodies being buried. Uh, so you're you're never quite yeah. <laughs> sure if that's the extent of what they're talking about, or is there more to it? Uh, which is such a, an, an evocative way of talking about the kinds of depravity that can occur under careless uh, or even intentionally malicious leadership at these kinds of giant corporations. I really liked uh, these scenes with Tom kind of getting the uh, uh, taken under the wing and shown shown the deep, dark secrets. I couldn't figure out what the secret was at first. Uh, His predecessor had hidden it so well and didn't actually come out and say it to the point where I was like, were there... Was there a serial killer? Were there, are we going to get really dark here? Like, I was kind of excited. Um, and, I mean, it's not quite as exciting as that, but still obviously very serious. Uh, the, the institutional cover-up of um, sexual assault, which uh, happens in so many organizations, you know, not, you know, we all think of the Catholic Church, of course. Also, USA Gymnastics, Ohio State University. Is it Ohio State? Am I saying the right one? The wrestling yeah, yeah, team State, doctor? Yeah. Um, Ohio State on top of uh, yeah. Penn State. But yes. Yeah, I mean, um, it's just, it's endless. Yeah. And, and yeah. And private like companies you as well. particularly know about this. This is your. Yeah, that's true. This is too full this episode wanna, in terms of. Yeah, I don't know if you want to divulge. <laughs> yeah. So working for a child's advocacy center, it's it's interesting to see all these stories now when they involve adults, like in the case of uh, the Ohio State University, or in a fictional story, this at ATN, it's, it's probably all adults. And so, you know, an, an adult does not have to report um, their sexual assault if they don't want to. And when you, the victim, don't go to the police yourself... Um, that institution is probably not looking out for you and is probably not going to help you. And they are going to do their best to t- treat the problem internally and victim blame and shove victims away. So um, it's, it's pretty sad, like how true this story is, like every aspect of it in this episode, especially. Yeah, they yeah, even I, talk about uh, sailing to sort of like friendly ports where there are friendly authorities right. on the cruises so they can that was like a cover things up more easily. If shitty things happen on the cruises or incidents that they would, yeah, they would go to, to, to friendly governments that would cover it up for them. And then the classic line of Greg, you know, this is Tom explaining it to Greg because Tom has tried and failed to talk to Kendall about it, talk to his fiance about it. You know, uh, uh, basically, these people are shutting him down. <laughs> Ken gives a great line um, to Tom when he says, you know, my dad used to say the people that eat he shit. says, yeah, he's, he's talking about Logan. And he says, you know, my dad always used to say that, you know, he loved the guys who would eat shit for him. And he never even knew about it, basically saying, don't bother me with this. Figure it out. Deal with it. I don't care if there's nuclear rods at the bottom of the death pit. Like, I don't want to know. And so... <laughs> You know, naturally, the only person that he can really go to at this point is Greg. And so, you know, he calls, he says, Greg, you know, your family, even though he also says in the same breath that whoever he tells is complicit, <laughs> you know, so not not super familial of him. But um, 
you know, he does hand this information over to Greg. And so Greg says, you know, well, what kind of incidents are you guys covering up? And he's like, theft, sexual assault, rape, murder. And Greg's like, oh, okay, the bad ones. The bad ones. (laughs) (laughs) And then um, the only actual, to Brendan's point about how they keep it kind of vague about exactly what's happening, the only specific that he gives is that the head of cruises would go on like these entertainment tours and give contracts to the dancers who basically gave him sexual favors. That was the only specific, but other than that, we're supposed to sort of just, um, you know, use our imaginations, which, you know, in, in this world, as Kate was talking about, of, um, you know, constant influx of news regarding institutions covering up horrible secrets related to, you know, particularly instances of rape and abuse, um, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's not that hard to, to sort of imagine what kind of things they've been covering up. So that is, that is the death pit. Yeah, my two favorite parts about that scene, well, I guess it's kind of multiple themes, is like Greg has just learned of the, I'm sorry, Tom has just learned of the death pit and is completely like morose and distraught. And he's looking out from his office and he sees Greg and Greg kind of like, you know, waves to him and Tom goes, says to himself, Oh, fuck off. And yeah. then there's like, whispers, there's like a beat or like a five second beat. And then he's like, realizes he can use Greg for something. Greg can be useful to him in this situation. So we know he's like truly becoming a Roy. Uh, but, and, and so then like after Gabby has just said that, you know, he go, goes through the list, all the bad things. And then they're talking about being infected with the, with the virus and you know, how you tell anyone, then they become infected. And then, Greg just looks up and deadpan says, oh no, I've become infected with the virus. And it's just so funny. Kind of like, I don't think I'm going to like it in the death pit. (laughs) Oh no, he says, I have the virus, don't die. (laughs) So funny to me. I also want to shout out in this episode the uh, wonderful. Uh, performance by uh, character actor Mark Bloom from uh, Desperately Seeking Susan, who plays uh, uh, his predecessor uh, at Cruises and is really just gives this great sort of wry kind of devilish performance where he is clearly so glad to be out of there and to be dumping this on Tom. But my favorite bit of acting he does in that scene is where he like shuts the door and goes through this whole spiel about like, all right, I've turned off the Wi-Fi. I've disconnected this laptop from the network. I'm typing this into a word document. And I'm going to print it out because I don't want anything with my handwriting on it. And Tom is like nervously <laughs> going, uh, sounds like you've been watching uh, too many spy movies. And he goes, baby. <laughs> it's a, that's a great moment. And he is so good. And that, that actor. He's like, he's like, you have two options, Bill. you know, either I tell you or I don't, but either way, it's going to be fun. <laughs> well, but he says he's well, got a big smile on his face the whole time. Yeah, it's very, it's very devilish. But the reason he says, yeah, yeah the reason he says you're going to be fine is your family. That's why he's giving it right. to Tom. That's why he feels comfortable handing this off to Tom because you're in the family. And so it's this, the one thing I really like about this episode is that how clearly it establishes the status that Tom has and that he's becoming to be be acutely aware that he has where he is both in the family yet not really of it because he, uh, this sort of liminal position he's in 
sort of between the family and the outside world is used to dump things like this on him because he can be you know, sort of a convenient uh, scapegoat so that the family is alerted, but not really. And uh, at the same time, he's not really able to talk to Ken or to talk to Shiv, you know, the people he should be able to talk to about these things. He's just left uh, increasingly isolated by it. This is the first Reckney ball he's going to, which, you know, again, just kind of like showcases that like he's totally brand new to this. He used to look at the pictures. He was a young boy. In my in mom's vanity fair. Oh, that is such a sad detail. That is such like a Buster Bluth detail. It really is, yeah. I mean, it just didn't even remember that he wasn't there last year. Like she thought he was there. She was she was like convinced he was there, and he was like, "No, I was in Shanghai." And she's just like, "Oh." Oh, then, I thought you were this total non-entity <laughs> that's just always been on my arm as long as I've been alive, this useless appendage. But uh, we want to talk about, um, uh, you know, the way that storyline resolves itself, which is Jerry confronting Tom at the gala, telling him he needs to, you know, you know, just keep a lid on this and handle it himself uh, because he's the sin cake eater is the uh, uh, disgusting analogy that she uses. Um, and he immediately assumes that Greg has uh, informed Jerry and uh, they have a bit of a falling out over this, though Greg protests his innocence, leading Tom on the ride home to feel even more isolated as he is starting to think that, you know, maybe it was Shiv that sold him out and was not even uh, 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 willing to talk to him about the problem. But then it turns out that it was, in fact, Greg who gave the information to Jerry. And I think the first Greg is a player. he's learning to sort yeah. of, uh, be a bit more cunning than he lets on. Greg is the man who sees all, as we said before, and is not going to be, I don't think, at all the bumbling Jonah guy. And in fact, I, I predict very early, but you know, from seeing all the episodes multiple times, that next season he's going to, but I, I think he's going to have the upper hand and some potential moves um, at the company. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I'm so surprised how Tom told Greg in his word. Just like, he's so gullible. Come on. Yeah, but it it gets to his deep insecurity about Shiv clearly. Right, but and but like just thinking about the way that Jerry kind of takes him down at the gala. And Jerry definitely has a little bit of a buzz on, um, <laughs> but she's fucking with him, and it kind of brings brings back um, Roman's line from the second episode when he calls her like a stone cold bitch, um, or or he's like, I'm not trying to be rude, but I've always thought of that you're kind of just a stone cold bitch, and and um, we really see that. <laughs> that side of her um, very much explicitly with the way she talks to Tom at the gala and basically says after he asks her like you know how do you know about this and she's like <laughs> she says she's like oh Tom sleeping with your mother <laughs> or like I, I've, I've been having a sexual relationship with your mother and she she talks when she sleeps and Tom's face when they pan back to him is just like <laughs> the life is just sucked out of him it's so funny and it's um, I think Jerry and Ava really, you know, kind of uh, dominate in this episode in terms of uh, taking down the main characters. Um, Jerry does so a little bit more subtly with Ken um, in sort of uh, uh, showing that um, she doesn't really think Ken has the chops to run the business. Um, There's an incident we can talk about where um, Ken is humiliated by his dad and Jerry's like, well, what did you do about it, Ken? Like, what did you do when it happened? And Ken's just like, uh, 
well, I don't know. I didn't want to embarrass him. And then her face is kind of just like, yeah, exactly. You know, um, you're just, you're not, you don't have it in you. You know, you don't have the cruelty, the ruthlessness. And then that sort of happens again at the gala when, um, when Ken is sort of usurped from his role as, as the, the keynote speaker. And he's like, Jerry, like, go talk to dad. And, and she just kind of looks at him like, you know, she knows that he just he just doesn't have the chops for this. She's been around longer than any of the kids. Um, she knows how Logan has gotten to his position where he is. And it's not at all by being nice or by being, um, you know, by being indirect or, or trying to be coy or, or trying to use other people to uh, to send your messages and relay your thoughts Uh and uh, I, th- I think she she knows that, and she's, you know, I don't know if, she, if it's because she's extremely loyal to Logan, or she just realizes kind of the bigger picture. Yeah, I think uh, there are a few moments, maybe one other, but yeah, that scene really stuck with me when she asked Kendall about the piss, because Logan pisses in... Uh, Kendall's office when Kendall is uh, in another room talking with Stewie and as you already mentioned you know uh, she asks why he says what what should I do and you know she says well what'd you say to him when you first found out first of all she knows he didn't say anything right so she's like you know she's making I, I think in some ways, she might even be trying to impart to Ken that, like, step up, dude. Like, it's not just a taking down, but it's also, like, a challenge. But then when he replies, I didn't want to humiliate him, you realize it's a lost cause. I mean, right. if you don't want to fucking humiliate your enemy or who you're going after um, in this power duel, like... Get the fuck out of here. And this is, like, right in between um, Stewie, Logan, and Ken kind of all meeting together at the office. And, you know, first it's Stewie and Ken, and Ken's like, you know, who's in charge here? You know, I don't want to be reductive, but, like, be straight with me. And Ken's like, me, you know, legally and effectively. And then by the time Ken is back in the room, Logan has pissed in his office, and Logan is making, you know chit chit chat with Stewie very pleasant and you know it's very clear that you know and then Stewie says something to Logan like you're the boss I mean Ken and Logan are fighting about Opalite uh going into data mining and Ken is like well you know it's a saturated field and they're kind of snake oil salesmen and it's a gold rush and Logan's like yeah and who likes gold it's just such a great line it's just another takedown um the way you know that Stewie is kind of looking at the two of them very quizzically uh, both at the gala and, and at this earlier office scene sort of like you know who's in charge here um and 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 Ken is very much convinced that he is um but Logan um you know will not let that come to pass there's our episode title who's the boss that's the alternate title for succession yeah and i mean even logan is like seething in the car he's with connor and connor has sort of taken on this role of planning the gala um which might have maybe fallen to marcia but she's sort of busy taking care of of logan's health because he's not doing that well like you see him at one point getting a shot of something um i don't know if it's steroids but the doctor's like you're only supposed to do three of these and like a year and you've had three in like two weeks, like, and Logan's like jibber jabber, 
you know, shut up and shoot up. <laughs> he's just like, doesn't give a fuck. He's like, I'm going to make it to this gala. Um, and in the car, Connor, we get some glimpses of, of the childhood. Uh, Connor's like, you know, I remember when me, me and me, you and mom used to sit at the Reckney ball and you'd be talking to me about all these, you know, influential New York families, you know, this guy asked her, he he's doing this and he went there and he's porking her and she's a slut. And it was just a really lovely time. <laughs> And again, like I've talked before about how there's no way you can have a normal childhood when you're born into wealth, particularly extreme wealth. Um, and for that for, for Connor to be sort of nostalgically looking back on that, um, you know, his dad just being vulgar and crude when it was very, very funny. But but yeah, I mean, this is, again, back to the central tension between Ken and Logan. There's a lot going on in this episode. Well, another funny bit from that car ride, and I'm sorry to drag this out but um is when connor's like what if i could take over the foundation you know i mean instead of dancing you know could we (laughs) everybody's already dancing yeah he's (laughs) like you know instead of uh sick kids and dancing could we maybe pivot toward tax reform And I lend a hand like, to stimulate free enterprise yes! libertarian oh. pieces. Oh right? God. And that's our first, isn't that the first time we get a sense of like what Connor, like how he, I guess maybe in the pilot when he's talking about, you know, his talking about water how, preservation. Right. Yeah. 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 So that also speaks to cryogenic like, stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But th- for this, well, this it, is, like, totally, this is where we, this is where we get a glimpse of Connor's, I think, a more recognizable. Because in the first couple episodes, he's talking about water, which is like Mad Max shit, you know, and he's talking about, um, you know, cryogenics in the second episode. And you're like, okay, this guy's pretty kooky. And he's still pretty kooky, mm-hmm. but in this episode, he's more of a recognizable kind of rich asshole, right? The rich libertarian freak is who Connor totally. is. Yeah, and he wants to take over this charitable foundation, which is supposed to be about, you know, supporting the arts, um, which, of course, the family has total contempt for because they call it the sad sack wasp trap. Um, And Connor's like, I'm going to take a more active role. But it seems to me like his active role is just micromanaging the person who's actually running the event. So, Kate, I think this is probably a good time to segue (laughs) into what you thought of uh, maybe the the way that the Reckney Ball is run. Like, I don't know if you have you uh, I don't know how this compares to sort of like the scale of events that you've uh, that you've had to run in your in your in your work before um, or whether maybe you've worked with people like connor and uh, what you can say about that <laughs> uh well first of all most people involved in fundraising are definitely uh rich libertarian assholes so uh absolutely um most <laughs> uh, galas that i have been a part of uh are a little bit smaller uh in terms of um the expected revenue generator. Um, basically, nothing outside of New York can compare to New York in terms of fundraising events uh, like this one. Um, but also in terms of attendance and things like that. I recently ran one that had about 570 attendees, which is quite large, but I know of many that have 750 to 1,000. So Working for a local nonprofit as opposed to a national one, a state one, or something that's just very, very famous and well-known, uh, definitely have a little bit smaller pool of uh, attendees and donors and things like that. Um, in this episode, Connor really appears to be the event chair, which is a volunteer position. 
and is often a title held by a socialite who is invited to hold the title by the organization or by a board member, which um, obviously each member of the Roy family is, uh, or something like that. And Yes, he's very micromanagey. I have worked with event chairs like this, and it drives professional events coordinators crazy. It is hilarious to see him do things that are often the job of lower level staff members, uh, like herding people to the right bar, like, oh, the room is lopsided, and I've got to get people to go over to this bar where there's a much shorter wait so that people don't start getting pissed off and angry. Um, that's definitely something that staff do. But he is really, really into it, um, which I have seen um, event chairs get really into it. They uh, sort of have their personal um, uh, reputation on the line. They need to have a good event and um, uh, make a lot of money so that they look good to their friends, right? This is why they're really participating in this, ultimately. Yeah, and I think it's a way for Connor to sort of look good to his family, like by not having a role in the company and sort of just being off doing his thorough thing. Um, this is like a way for him to show, hey, dad, like, you know, look at me. Um, look how great the ball is. You know, I'm concerned, so concerned about the butter and the placement of the forks. Um, you know, and he goes into halfway through, he goes into the kitchen, he's screaming, you're all fired. And then at the end, you know, he's like, this was amazing. Everyone's promoted. Um, Alan Ruck, just very, very funny, very well played. But yeah, I mean, I think it's a way of sort of ingratiating himself um, to his dad that, um, you know, he's unable to do by, by not really being in the business. But yeah, I mean, his his style in this uh, in this episode is unreal. I mean, when he's backstage with the dancers, who it's like an all black contemporary dance crew, and he's talking to, to one of them, and he's like, "So where are you from?" I mean, the, the guy's like Bushwick, and he's like, "Yes, indeed, indeed." Like he has absolutely this, no idea. Oh, where this Bushwick is. is. This is one of my favorite scenes in the whole series because a like yeah. the speech he the the first line he gives he like shakes hands with this dancer who's like you know a black man a dancer he goes yeah people have a lot of preconceptions about me too you know um, it's difficult yeah <laughs> difficult oh not like God. I'm sure everything it's is for you and then he and then he has this line where he goes see I actually have this idea that social equality could be achieved with a total eradication of federal support just people. People like you and me doing it together, <laughs> fighting it out, which is like a longer version of Ken's this doing it for themselves line. Yeah. Yeah. And also just another so funny. Another drop in the bucket for for Connor is just like the absolute worst archetype of a libertarian rich guy. Um, just so patronizing, so paternalistic. Um, thankfully, that conversation doesn't go on any longer because it would just be so, it was already so cringeworthy. Yeah. Um, another cringeworthy thing that goes on in this episode in the, at the gala that reminded me a little bit of, of the pilot is um, Roman with his girlfriend slash wife. Um, it's very vague and unclear. There's reasons to believe that they might be married and reasons to believe that they're Probably not, but we don't need to flesh that out because she doesn't last. I think think one more episode. She's she's in the next episode, and then they go another way with Roman's love life. But um, it's very much reminded me of how shitty Roman was in the in the pilot in the baseball scene, and how we just can't let it go. So 
his uh, girlfriend, we'll just call her his girlfriend, Grace, he, after Roman sort of goes to, he goes to Logan's table and he's like, so what's going on? Um, Frank is back and, you know, Roman has hangups with Frank and, and we know that Roman has worked very closely with Frank. I think they were together in, was it California? Um, and he sort of has this, like, contempt for him, like, <laughs> when he came back. Yeah, he LA. Get some Sorry. funny lines to, to Ken about, like, you know, just just tell him to go back to bed. He needs to eat some soup and, and rest. You know, he obviously is content that he's very, like, openly ageist towards Frank. Um, he's very frustrated. And so Frank is back and Frank is, um, you know, <laughs> there's another funny line where he's like, Roman is directly confronting Frank and Frank's like, well, he said he's sorry. And and Roman's like, yeah, he said he was sorry when he ran over his, he hit our au pair with his car. He said he was, said she, it was her fault for being too short. <laughs> No, he said he didn't apologize oh, he for didn't. running. He's like, he said he's sorry. He didn't even apologize right. to the au pair he ran over. <laughs> he's like, he blamed it on. Yeah, he it said that she was too, too short. Yeah. Roman is like kind of talking to Logan like, hey, what's going on with this with Frank? And uh, is he back? And who is he to me? And um, and Frank is and, and Logan's kind of just like, well, you know, you need to soak up Frank's experience um do what he fucking tells you and you know roman's pissed and so he goes back to the table and notices that his girlfriend is sort of talking to this waiter and he he sees it as as kind of flirtatious and he sort of starts provoking the waiter like oh do you want her number are you you trying to get her number and she's clearly just like very openly dismayed and grossed out by it he's he's getting wasted you know like so the waiter has a bottle of wine and he refills rome's uh, glass and then he's like oh so so why don't you ask her for a number why don't you ask her very much reminded me of the pilot with just how gross and rude he is when he asks the you know he tells the little kid he's gonna give him a million dollars if he hits the home run and and grace is just sitting there and she actually takes the pen from the from the waiter and writes down her number and he li- he's like looking at it he's like oh that's actually her number that's actually her number and it's just such a fucking immature horrible thing to do um, and just was not a good moment for Rome. Well, it's another instance of, you know, one of the Roy's like flexing on somebody who is like completely beneath them in terms of status, uh, because they're being, yeah. you know, uh, uh, pushed to the side somewhere else. You know, he's clearly acting out because he's got all this anxiety about being replaced by Frank. Um, but again, that scene ties into that interesting closing scene with Roman and Grace where, uh, he's getting her off with the vibrating phone, you know, which is, you know, a pretty weird scene in and of itself, but it ties into this pattern of Roman not being able to be properly physically intimate with people. Yeah. Very weird. I didn't even notice that. Um, so my second to last rewatch that he's getting her off with the vibrating phone, ostensibly like a text message from the waiter or a call. Um, but it's, yeah, it's very weird. It's like, you can just use your fingers for that dude. Uh, overall. I mean, it was a really gross and uncomfortable scene both at the ball and then him with grace at home later but his treatment of the waiter is very similar to connor's treatment of the event staff and especially the kitchen staff with screaming about um the butter uh being cold and not being able to be spread the event is ruined the forks aren't placed correctly 
Um, I do think, though, that this episode did a very good job in sort of representing that roller coaster of emotions that event staff feel when putting on high stakes event like this. Um, I recently um, helped to coordinate my organization's uh, gala, and we were expected to net over half a million dollars. We did so, but it was uh, a lot of hard work you know, working long, 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 long hours, many hours of overtime for all of us. Uh, And of course, we're exempt, so we don't actually make overtime. The emotional labor, the physical labor, all of that, and and the stress involved with it um, really just makes you raw. And the emotions of every little thing that go on can set you off. And it's just really, it was really funny to me to watch Connor flip his shit and completely lose it, screaming at people over what really seemed like incredibly minor details, but to you in that moment are the biggest deal and are going to make or break the experience of the high roller attendees at the event who are supposed to spend their money. And then at the end... He's so happy. Everything works out really well. He's joyful. Uh, and I definitely experienced that at mine. Um, more than a few galas, I think that that has happened. So often you see shows portraying professions and it is so wrong, whether you're an attorney or a flight attendant. I mean, any kind of profession that you see is often just so completely off base that it's uh, it's distracting and it actually kind of pisses you off about how bad it is. Um, this, these short scenes together actually were so accurate. It, it hurt. I was like, why are you calling me out right now? I feel like you're calling me out personally. And that hurts did my feelings. You, did you feel represented by the yes. Napoleon <laughs> quote that he gives at the end where he goes, oh, I can no longer obey. I have tasted <laughs> command and I cannot give it up. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> His his uh, passion for Napoleon is really interesting, and would love to go into that a little more in another episode. Um, we are ninety nine percent sure one of the writers is uh, is an agent Napoleon fan. Yes, <laughs> yes, that rules. That's um, right, Kate. Was, you're from a you're from a podcasting family. So yes, yes. <laughs> you wanna you wanna give a plug? Yeah. Um, if you don't listen to Age of Napoleon, what the fuck are you doing? Check <laughs> That's it out. Right. Age of Napoleon biography of um, the most famous man who ever lived. And told in a it. really easy, digestible way. Support and on the, Patreon. <laughs> <laughs> the handle is at Age of Napoleon for Twitter. Yes. Is that correct? Okay. Um, I was just going to add that there are people that would notice the forks and the butter and the what have you, because I can tell you from my dad's family, who is insane, like when I go out to eat with my, when I've gone out to eat with my aunt, she has chastised the waiters or the servers previously for clearing one plate before Everyone is finished. If you're at my uncle's house and you don't move the salt and the pepper at the same time, <laughs> then and what the fuck are you doing? Like, you have to move them. It's so ridiculous, the etiquette that they, like, 
I mean, and obviously it's making up for some sort of, you know, insecurity, which is a whole nother thing going on with them. But for people that feel like they come from a certain background or whatever, they like really put some of them really put a lot of stock in this bullshit, which is ridiculous. But I can see precisely why Connor would. And specifically, again, because it is such a high pressure event. And this is, I think, his first time actually, as Gabby mentioned, you know, actually doing something for the family. And he really wants to make a good impression so he can run that foundation and get some stimulation for free enterprise baby that's right and the one connor does end up doing one big thing that is really momentous to the plot in this episode which is seeing something on the teleprompter for ken's speech about a surprise uh logan retirement announcement and making the decision to sub in logan as speaker and undercut Ken so that he can't announce Logan's retirement. Now, it's not established really whether Ken attended to announce his dad's retirement or, as he claims, he was just going to make a joke about his dad never retiring. Um, but it's, uh, it's, it, that's left a little bit ambiguous. He was going to make a joke. We know Kendall at this point. He doesn't have the balls to stand up on stage and like force his dad into retirement. If he did... He would be in a completely different position by now. That is my interpretation. Like, there's no way he was he was he was going to make a joke. Like, Kendall just doesn't have the yeah chutzpah. I agree. I agree. Yeah. On a rewatch, and especially with that scene with Jerry after the um, the piss incident, where he's like very earnestly just like, "Well, I didn't want to embarrass him," and she kind of looks at him like, you know, yeah. Well, that's your that's your problem. You know, if you're not willing to embarrass then you're not cut out for this. And what's what's wild is, like, his dad should respect that move. You know what I'm saying? Like, given previous, like, right. his testing in the pilot, you know. But, of course, uh, Logan isn't going to be happy with that, even though feasibly that is what he really wants Kendall to be like and a shark, etc. But That's astute analysis, I think, of what Ken's intentions would be. You know, we know he was talking earlier about how he was uh, the king of the Harvard Lampoon, which is another bit of biographical detail that is uh, so perfect as to what forms the particular self-delusions of a person like Kendall Roy. Uh, But it makes perfect sense that that would be just a gag that he was um, flirting with. But of course, it serves to uh, deepen sort of the divide between father and son at this point as Logan's uh, sort of paranoia is stoked, although he's clearly still not in his right mind at this point. He's a little bit loopy, acting out, doing things like pissing on the floor in the office. And I think if he was really thinking clearly, he would know that his son would not betray him in that manner, that he's not that kind of person. Yeah, I was wondering what y'all's take was on how Logan's well-being is at this point. You know, it's not very clear. As you mentioned, the piss scene prior to that, he kind of zones out talking to Stewie or as he calls him Stuart and um, Kendall. So yeah, I was, I, 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 I'm not really sure. I don't know. I mean, he had a hard time walking. Obviously, yeah, Marsha is clearly not feeling good. Yeah. And, like, I noticed for the first time when he's coming into the ball and he sort of has his back entrance and then he comes out and he's put into the wheelchair, he says to Marsha, like, I don't think I can do it. And she kind of says, like, fuck them, you know, as to, I don't know, I don't know if she means specifically, like, Ken, because, um, 
because Logan knows that something might be going on with Ken speaking. Um, it's, it's sort of brought up earlier in the episode and, and you know, he's, he's not doing well. He can early in the, earlier in the day, like, he can barely walk. Like he's practicing walking with a physical therapist um, in his house. He's getting, you know, shot up by the doctor. So, so I think he's really doing poorly. And then even when he's trying, trying to like get up to the, to the stage and, and Marsh is like, holding on to him and just saying like, just pretend that you're talking to Dan with you get there. Um, she's really kind of like propelling this forward. Yeah. I thought it was interesting. I, I didn't pick up on that sort of from Marsha before her, her sort of telling him like, you know, kind of gassing him up for this. Yeah. From the very start of the episode, when he's doing the walking, they have the classical music and I mean, she knows just the right things to say to motivate him to get him to go going. I mean, it's, it's really, yeah. and again, I didn't really notice as well um, until this episode. It's really like heartening how supportive she is of Logan. And I came away from this episode definitely fonder of her than I had been previously. Um, and I also thought it was the right move to have the episode actually close like on her face when they're in the backseat. Um, just because she is the propeller of Logan this entire episode. And it, it seemed to befit the, kind of motifs yeah and especially after the third episode where we learn about how ambiguous her sort of background and biography and her ultimate intentions really are i thought it was yeah exactly as you say kate it was quite moving to see really how fiercely in logan's corner marcia is you know she really does have his back and is really pushing him to you know not just recuperate slowly but to push himself and to really get back to where he wants to be and that's contrasted i think especially in that closing scene with shiv who is obviously contrasted and paralleled with marsh in a number of ways over the course of the season um where shiv uh, has an opportunity to be there for her man, for Tom, who's in this crisis mode of trying to figure out what to do with the death pit. And she doesn't have the time of day for him. She's wrapped up in her own stuff. And in the car at the end, they're not talking and there doesn't seem to be a bond there. Whereas Marsha's sitting in silence in this sort of peace with, you know, what she's doing and what her intentions are. Um, it's, I think, a very striking contrast. So I think it makes sense also to uh, circle back one more time to uh, Ken, yeah. uh, because this ties back into Shiv and the ATM storyline and what Ken is doing at the ball. Ken's big decision that he has to make in this episode does not actually involve his father. It involves who are you going to go to the reckoning ball with because uh, he can't go stag and Rob is not going to go with him because that's insane. Um, so he has to find someone to go with. He makes an offhand comment about how he wants to go with this hot ATN anchor um, sub in the blonde Fox News host of your choice here um, and and uh, he ends up going with her, although it's not really clear how that happened, although they, she doesn't seem to be having a great time. He's then so it, awkward in those early scenes. It's so awkward. They're making awful oh conversation. God. He's asking her for, like, public speaking tips. Yeah, uh, I'm actually quite nervous about giving my speech 
And she just responds, are you? <laughs> she doesn't give a fuck. <laughs> she so acts like, it, it, yeah, he God. says, I feel like I'm on a date with an app at the end of the yeah. episode. And that's where it comes back full force to the theme of sort of sexual coercion throughout the episode. Ken had said to Roman, it's not cool for me to ask her out. You know, I'm, I'm her boss. Um, it's not really shown, I think, quite how he ends up with her there. I think that the um, sort of assistant to Logan or the Roy family in general actually made that happen. Who was, was there at the home? I-, I don't know, but I could be wrong. You mean to set up the we date? We do learn to set up the date. I thought we do learn that it's we, but there could have been an intermediary, and oh, it probably sure. yeah, was yeah. before Eva, but. But yeah, yeah. Eva yeah. was the one that we learn, and I'm sure Brendan, you're going to speak to that a little bit. Yeah, exactly. So it it comes out that Ava had the conversation with uh with Anna with uh with his date, and she said to quote unquote make sure he has a really really good time. This seems to take Ken totally by surprise. He is aware that it would be frowned upon for uh, a boss to ask their subordinate uh, on a date. But he also seems to be totally unaware that this sort of culture where, you know, favors are demanded of employees for their higher ups or for other people in the hierarchy uh, is at play at ATN and it's at play in cruises and it's throughout the whole company. And he goes yeah, and, and confronts. Yeah, Ro- Roman's Ava. kind of pushing him too, which is uh, yeah, exactly always helpful. He goes and confronts Ava about this this confrontation that we see play out sort of from a distance. We don't see exactly how it goes, although she seems to be uh, quite firmly, you know, waving him off or denying or asserting herself. Uh, but for me, this just underscored, you know, how unprepared he is to lead this company and how much, you know, he thinks he's the right person to do it. But he is so unfamiliar with the way it actually works and where the real levers of power are. Well, the thing that really pissed me off about him going to speak to Ava is that he promised Anna he would not. And like, again, this, again, this was like, you know, the women getting fucked over kind of, you know, yeah, she's like, please don't say anything to you. And he's like, no, no, you know, and I mean, I guess kind of, of course he's going to, but on the other hand, like, dude, fucking respect her. I mean, it yeah. could jeopardize, it could jeopardize her position. And exactly. Yeah. yeah. He, he definitely was aware that he did off the bat. know it would be wrong to ask someone below him to go as his date. I'm her boss, but I'm her boss. You know, you can't do that. And then Gabby, as you mentioned, Roman, just like with the full on phony shit about how much pussy he's getting. And so, yeah, they're sitting down at the, at the end, Ken and Anna, when they're sort of, uh, talking about this and discussing it and he ken has like a not all men moment where she where he's like you know i'm not that guy i'm not the the kind of guy who she's explaining like you know you're the boss so that's why i'm here and he's like but i'm not that guy and she's like well you know you you actually are (laughs) um and and so yeah i think just the lack of self-awareness there on ken's part woof 
Um, you know, it's well, it's it's, it's a whole mess of things where he wants to, you know, he wants to go talk to Ava about it because he wants to do what he thinks is the right thing in the situation and address the person that he feels has wronged this woman, you know, in this sort of you know weird distorted chivalry kind of moment. Uh, but it just it demonstrates just a number of things about his naivete about what the situation is and like the dynamics of power at play and that he's not the only person who has influence there. And in fact, it seems like Ava probably has more influence than he does right now. So how much is him going to talk to her really going to help anything or even make things worse? Yeah. Ava really alpha dogging in this episode between Shiv and Ken and then Jerry with also with, with Ken and Tom. Yeah. I know we talked a little bit about the, the gender dynamics at play in this episode, but, um, you know, it doesn't seem to be sort of a, a very clean cut male, female type of dichotomy. I mean, a lot of the women here are central sort of to the, to the continued abuses going on at ATN, Waysar Royco. So, um, it does really show how somebody mentioned earlier, you can, it's so easy to get inculcated into these kinds of corrupt cultures, um, doesn't matter if you're a man, a woman, a person of color, um, power corrupts. And uh, I think a lot of the kids and central characters in this episode are um, are faced with sort of repercussions of that power that they are not expected to, to have to face and are, are sort of uh, bewildered and um, very taken aback by, by a number of, of things that you know, they're hit with. Yeah, I know I had kind of mentioned a little bit before, and I may, before the recording, I may be reading into a lot of this, but I kind of saw a lot of the gender dynamics as women kind of running the show. They're like, they're doing the hard work. They're the ones that are, you know, putting together press releases. There's Carolina, Stephanie, you know, not freaking out yeah. about. Uh, so Marsha, yeah. Oh, totally. And Marsha, um, you know, basically booing Logan. I just felt, and, and they all, except Marsha also, you know, for the most part, were cool as a cucumber. Carolina did get visibly upset when Logan yelled at her. But the men were the ones, to me, that were being, like, you know, emotionally driven more so um, than the women during this episode. And again, I don't know if I'm reading too much into that with all the other sexual gender dynamics, um, at play. But, um, yeah, I felt like, you know, the women are really kind of holding up, holding up the world for, for these men and they, they kind of get to have power duels or whatever that are symbolic and not meaningless dick, you know, big dick challenges, whatever, but they're doing the hard work and the men are just like there. Yeah. I think, just the major exception here would just be Shiv. Um, oh, totally. Yeah, in, she's in this episode. Yeah, for sure. Shiv is like her own beast because she's a Roy. So she's, <laughs> or at least that's how I look at it. Yeah. You know, like Brendan, I think you thought that was reading a little too much into it. Um, no, I mean, I, I think the way that you put it just there, I would, I would agree with. I think that um, you know, in particular, like Ava and Jerry are really at the center of the action here and really driving things at the company, especially with Logan being away. They're sort of stepping in to fill the void. 
And I think that the way you frame it about how, you know, power is going to corrupt no matter, you know, what your identity is and what that may bring to the table uh, is, is very astute. And I think this sh- it's another really intelligent thing that the show does is present that without really underlining it or signposting it. And it, I think, really underscores, again, how out of place Ken is there and how unprepared he is uh, to try to take those reins. Yeah, and I didn't mention Ava or Jerry because I feel like, again, what you just said, like they, they're doing the work too, but they also are like man figures in their own way because of power corrupting, et cetera, et cetera. just want to bring up a really funny line that... Um... <laughs> that Roman had earlier in the episode because he had some really, really good one-liners. They tended to, they, 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 they went back and forth. Ro- Roman says to Ken something about like jerking off idea gloop into think boxes. And <laughs> that's just sort of like encompasses Ken's notion of what direction he wants to take the business in. I mean, idea gloop. I didn't know if that was like a reference to uh what, did he say idea goop, actually? I think he said a goop. I think it was a reference to... Uh, he said know. gloop. He said gloop? Okay, I thought maybe it would be... Like a po- a according to the closed caption. A Gwyneth Paltrow reference. But, um, yeah, there was a lot of great back and forth there between the two of them. Yeah, I just wanted to point out uh, um, some of Roman's just quick little lines, like um, the, that conservatives, you know, kind of use exaggeratingly but he like when they find out about the asshole video he tells Shiv this is precisely the kind of evidence that disgusting liberal metro butt love that makes our viewership angry enough to buy pharmaceuticals which like on a banner we're fox news kind of thing and then he uses uh beta cuck and trigger warnings and the idea gloop and you know i I, it's fun to see them kind of lean into that you know i think that this episode is sort of the first time that you really kind of see the roy's place in the world you know there's a lot of talk in the first three episodes about um, the state of the company, the debt that it's in, what it is as kind of a, a media company, the news stations buying up these affiliate, local affiliate stations. And of course, from the very beginning, we, we know that it has theme parts. But I think that Tom being brought in and dragging Greg along with him and seeing um, Connor's perspective of the ball, we really get a sense of who the Roys really are and the place that they have in New York society and in the business world, truly. Um, uh, And, you know, we're still getting to know them and we're still getting introduced to them. And this just gives us that much more depth to sort of propel the rest of the season forward. Yeah, there's a line from um, one of the articles that we we looked at um, before this podcast, and there's a line about sort of how familial dysfunction translates to societal dysfunction, particularly in powerful families like this. And I think very much dovetailing with what Kate just said, this episode we really see the dynamics for what they are a little bit more fleshed out. Um, again, not thrown in our faces but kind of very subtly and and artfully sort of portrayed to us um and and we see a lot of their weaknesses exposed a lot of ideas surrounding power privilege yes and it's, it's very running. much it's yeah. very much laid bare in this episode um in terms of of weaknesses that are exposed and power dynamics that are that are 
further fleshed out and and portrayed. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that the show is necessarily trying to do a sort of bone-deep societal critique, although it is, you know, very intelligent and it's capable of that. It is fundamentally a story about this family and these characters, and that's what makes it so good is that that drama is so strong. Um, but I do think that, yeah, that's that's well put, Gabby. I think that the this is an episode where the family drama is really overlaid on these structures and these institutions, like these charitable institutions, like ATN, like the company itself, and the dysfunction of one is reflected in the dysfunction of the other. So uh, it's it's a really, I think, really, I think, necessary grounding for sort of how the drama plays out for the rest of the season. Yes, the death pit. <laughs> we are all going into the death pit. We're all infected with the virus. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, I think that's about it for this episode of the Roycast. Um, I want to thank our guest, Kate, for coming on. Thank you so much, Kate, for coming on. I really enjoyed hearing what you had to say. Yay! Yay. Thanks, Thanks so for much, having Kate. me, guys. I appreciate it. And uh, once again, you want to? Do you have a, a Twitter handle or a podcast of your own that you want to plug? Yeah, you can follow me at, at KateHasCats on Twitter.com. That's a great handle. Don't know how you got that handle. That must have been like one of the first ones to go. <laughs> I've had a lot before this one, actually, but it's a long story. I figured all the cat-related handles would have been like the first ones that got taken. Yeah, <laughs> good handle, good job, Kate. <laughs> Again, yeah, thank you, Kate. We really appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Glad to be all on. All right, folks. Next time we meet, we're going to be talking about episode five. I went to market, which is the show's holiday episode. Um, it's a Thanksgiving episode, um, and I'm sure everything's going to go great. The family's going to have a nice time. <laughs> Uh, so uh, we'll talk to everybody then. Cheers. Bye. We're a rock rapper, not to Xerox. Weird, not enough to make you fear a lot from here. Watch. I ran scrimmage and I fought to the damn finish. And I popped eyes open without eating me canned spinach. My fans in it constantly telling me I can win it. If I stand grimace, damaging man every damn minute.